The stage was set. The night was dark. The forces of evil, both visible and invisible, were gathering and swarming upon one man. And it wasn't just any man. It was the one man who carried the weight of the world on his back. The only man who, with just one word, could have instantly eradicated all of his enemies. But he did not open his mouth. Not a single sermon was spoken by the greatest teacher of all time. A man who had, for three years, taught in synagogues, on boats, on the top of mountains, across the Galilean countryside. Not so much as a single mutter, a single syllable, a single word came from the one who always knew exactly what to say and exactly how to say it. There was nothing but deafening silence from the one who had to speak. And that's all that he had to do. And the blind saw and the lame left and the leper were healed, was healed and the dead was raised. He who spoke of the universe into existence stood in silence in the face of heinous slander and abuse. He quietly endured the shame of a jeering crowd, the interrogation, the trial, the questions, the scourging, the torture and the insults. Profound silence emanated from the one who bore infinite duress. His silence remained unbroken all the way to the place of the skull. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. And there... As Jesus hung on the cross, he opened his mouth. Seven words of life he cried, seven words with his last breath, seven words as Jesus died, seven words of life from the tree of death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this day when we celebrate what seemed to be the most horrific day in the history of the world. Lord, we pray that in these moments, in these moments, that we would be touched again, reminded again of your love and your sacrifice for us. Open our hearts to your word and our lives to the change you want to bring. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in life is that it's much easier to start something than it is to finish it. That finishing isn't the easiest thing to do. And we all know the sayings. We all know the truth that people care much more about how you finish than how you start. Right. Are are you here? Right. I mean, it's much more important about what you do in the end than what you do at the beginning. I was thinking about it just in life and projects that you do. Like your teacher really only cares whether you finish, not how well you get started. Right? Uh, you know, the part of what I do, I also teach at a Union University in the Hendersonville campus. And as I teach there, in every class that I teach, the students have to write something. A four or five page essay, a eight page paper, whatever, depending on the class, what it is. And many times I have gotten a paper excited. Well, I don't know the excited to read, but required to read that I have to grade. And as I open it up, the first two or three paragraphs, I'm like, 
man, this is going to be unbelievable. This is the way, this is awesome. And then I get to page four and I'm like, oh, we're done. Like, it's not very good, right? And we all have things in our lives that we're really good at starting, but we're not quite as good at finishing. I was thinking this week about that when I heard the story of one of the most famous artists of all time. Now, if you were here last fall, we did a series of messages called Masterpiece. And I don't really expect a lot of you remember that because some of you don't really remember what we talked about last week. But like last fall, we did this series on Masterpiece. And I mentioned this artist several times. Here's a picture of the guy. They might know who that is or remember who we talked about. Michelangelo, right? That's what you were all thinking. I know. All right. And so we talked about Michelangelo. Michelangelo is known for for doing uh, statues. He was a sculptor. He was an artist. Um, he, he did the, the statue of David. We talked about that quite a bit. And Moses. We talked about the Sistine Chapel. And here's what was fascinating about that is that Michelangelo was a guy that loved to start projects but didn't like to finish them. In fact, it's said that when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, you know what I'm talking about, right? The ceiling laid on his back, that while he was painting the Sistine Chapel, he would often just quit and go back home. And the Pope would have to go coax him back to finish the project. And so a few years ago, um, when he was, you know, uh, they were doing some historical stuff about him, they decided to collect all of Michelangelo's unfinished works into one place. And when they collected them from all over, he had them in different places and different studios and different areas and galleries. When they collected them in one place, they discovered that Michelangelo's unfinished works outnumbered his finished works by a lot. I saw this picture this week about a guy named A.T. Robertson. Now, you probably many of you probably don't know A.T. Robertson Um, for uh, those of us that went to seminary and those of us that have have. Who's taking Greek? A.T. Robertson's an important name. He is perhaps the most well-known scholar that Southern Baptists have ever produced. And this is A.T. Robertson's office on the day he died. A.T. Robertson had a Greek class that he went to at three o'clock in the afternoon. Three, 30 minutes into that, this is the 1920s. He, he got stricken with something. Two hours later, he had passed away. And so people were given the task of going in and discovering all of this stuff. Now, I take great solace in this picture. Amen, right? Because if those of you out there that are like me, this looks pretty neat, all right? Yeah, I get that. That's exactly what it looks like, all right? And so, but here's what was kind of interesting about it. One of the things they discovered in there that nobody knew he was doing, okay? He had set out on a life work of translating the entire New Testament. And he had made it all the way to the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew. Now, I don't know if you're not a biblical scholar, you might realize that's not very far, right? It's like a few chapters in. He couldn't finish his life's work. There's a gravestone on a guy named Cecil Roberts who wrote this as the line on his gravestone. So much to do, so little actually done. Anybody ever feel like that? Like, so much to do, so much actually done. I mean, we are all kind of familiar with what it's like not to finish projects, the partly mowed lawn, the half-read book, the letters that were written or started but never sent, the abandoned diet, the unsteady... um, stair rail that never quite gets fixed, the honeydew list that never gets fulfilled. Those are minor things and nuisances. 
But we also, many of us know the reality of unfinished business and bigger things. Abandoned child or a cold faith that started so well or just the inability to find a job that matches us and we hop from place to place or a marriage that started so well but ended up wrecked. A world that still needs to be evangelized. And that's why when we come to the sermon today, the phrase that we're going to focus on and the word we're going to focus on is so important. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. This, these, by the way, this scripture is not going to be on the screen. So if you're counting on that being your Bible, it's not going to be on the screen. It's going to be real short. But if you've got a Bible, turn in it or turn it on and surf to it on the net or whatever. John 19, and we're going to be starting in verse 28. But here's the basic story. We're in John 19, that's almost at the end of the book. And where we're going to pick up the story, Jesus is literally in his last moments on the cross. So he has endured the trials, he has endured the punishment, he's endured the crown rain, crucified him, he has endured the scourging, he's endured carrying the cross, he has been hung on the cross and has hung there for several hours. And as we pick up the story in John 19, starting in verse 28, these are the last moments of Jesus on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. With a mighty, final, triumphant declaration, Jesus from the cross says, it is finished. Have you ever thought about what the most significant word in the history of humanity might be? Maybe it was a word some people think from a philosopher, a word of wisdom from someone like Aristotle or Socrates or Plato. Maybe it was a word spoken by a poet poet in perfect meter and rhyme in just the right moment. Or maybe a statesman like Winston Churchill or Roosevelt or Lincoln or Reagan. Well, today, what I want to tell you, and I imagine you can figure this out, I think that the single most significant word ever uttered in the history of humanity was the last word of Jesus in the book of John. Finished. When a task is done, it's enough to just say finished. In fact, in the New Testament, when you read this word in the original Greek, it is finished, it's only one word. A singular word. And this is it. To Tetelestai. Now, some of you have seen that. I mean, if you can walk through, right now you can walk through Opry Mills, my guess is this afternoon, if, if you were so inclined to do that. And they have these woodworking, you know, the little kiosk in the middle. And they've got one in there that does stuff on wood now. And I remember walking by and on a pillow and on wood, it just said Tetelestai. Now, you got to be real churchy to know what that means. Amen? And so it says, to Telestai, and what is the single word that is there? And it is interpreted, and it is rightly translated into three simple words. It 
is finished. It is finished. And here's what I want to do with the time we have left today. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about that one single word. To tell us What it means. What it implies for us. How we can interpret it. What it impact it should have on our lives. Now, here's the thing. When I was in school, I took like four and a half years of Greek. And all of you care absolutely nothing about that. All right. But as part of our Greek training, just like it's part of Spanish or French or Latin, I suppose I didn't take Spanish or French, but I suppose is that you had to take a Greek word and you had to tear it down completely. We called it parsing the verbs. All right. Parsing the words. And so you would tear it down completely to the essence of what it is. You all know what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, when I when I was in school, we used to have to do that manually. We'd have to look at the endings. We'd have to look at the context. We'd have to do all of this stuff. Today, I'm sure the kids just put it in a computer somewhere and it tells them. But back in the old days, right, we didn't get that chance. And so I would have to parse that word. And if I was parsing this word to tell us die, this is what I would write. I would write that it is a third person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative. And all of God's people said, what? Right? That just bless your heart right there. Man, thank you. I, I, I leave now, Pastor. That's good. But here's the deal. Most of the time that stuff, it's significant, but it's not eternally significant. But when it's the last word that Jesus utters in the book of John on the cross, it has to hold significance. And in fact, each one of these things does hold significance. The first thing that we see is that it's third person. Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. He doesn't declare that he is done. Jesus says, it is finished. In fact, there was a scholar one time that said that what Jesus was doing here was just giving up, that he was done with life. He was over with it. He's just saying, I'm finished. But that's not what he says. It's not first person. It's third person. It. Is finished. Now, what it is, we're going to spend some time talking about in a minute. But the point is, it's not Jesus that's finished. Secondly, it's singular. So it's not we're finished or they're finished. It is it. Whatever this singular thing is, whatever it is that encompasses it, that is finished. It's perfect. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have any flaws in it. That's a that's a um, Tense of a Greek verb that means an action that is completed here, but has ongoing effects into the unforeseeable future. And so it's an action that happens now, but will have ramifications into all eternity. And so when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying that what is happening right now has eternal impact right now and going forward. Passive here, and this is important because in Scripture... Oftentimes in Scripture, we are told to do things in the passive. Now, passive is means you let the action happen to you, not that you do the action. I know y'all are excited about an English lesson here, right? But here's what happens in the Old Testament and, and New Testament. is Many times it'll say things like, be strengthened in the Lord. And the idea is don't go strengthen yourself. This isn't a workout you go do. Allow God to move and work in your life to strengthen you for the task that you need. Here Jesus is saying, it did not accomplish this thing. It did not finish it on its own. But I, Jesus, have finished whatever it is that needs to be finished. And then indicative. 
The opposite of that is subjunctive, which means that it could be, it might be, there's a possibility. Indicative is a declarative statement of is. It is finished. Third person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative. One mighty word with the entire sweep of God's history. It is finished. And even the word that's at the root of this, tello, is a word that means something that had reached its destination. We get literally our words telephone, telegram, television come from this original root word, which means that the message has landed where it's supposed to land. The, the, what was supposed to be accomplished has arrived. It has been transported. It is now here. And so when Jesus yelled to Telestai, he was saying, I have finished the purposes of God. And they have now been delivered to their appropriate and full intention. I'm done. I finished. What's interesting is that people really didn't understand this word for a long time. It's only found twice in the New Testament in this form. And what's interesting is the two places that are found are in John 19.30 where we just read it. And John 19, 28, where we just read it. In fact, he says in verse 28, if you still got your Bibles open or it's on your phone there, it says, after this, Jesus knowing that to Telestai. Jesus knowing that it had been finished, said, I thirst. And the idea here is that one of the seven last sayings of Jesus, you know, you saw that video, seven last sayings of Jesus. One of those was, I thirst. And many people think, most people think, that the reason he needed something was because he was wanting to give one final loud declaration. And in order to do that, he had to have something to kind of wet the lips, to get it ready, to be able to enunciate what he was going to say. Now, it does fulfill Scripture. The thirsting does fulfill Scripture. And him saying that, but it also prepared him to be able to say, knowing to Telestai it happened, he's going to yell to Telestai, it's finished. People are like, well, what did that mean? For a long time, they didn't know. Even Greek scholars are like, we don't even know what that word means. And then the 19th century, some people in Egypt were looking around for some stuff and they found some old papyrus writings and they dated them back to the time period of the New Testament. And because they were in Egypt, in the papyrus, in this dry sands of Egypt, they never turned brittle, they never faded, and it was like they found a treasure trove of something new. And as they began to look through these, these, these pieces of paper, as they looked through them, this, this plant, which words had been written on, the language of the New Testament started making more sense. And they started to discover the same words in the New Testament were on these writings in ancient Egypt. And up until that time, everybody thought that the New Testament had written in some strange, higher language that nobody could understand. But then they discovered it wasn't written in a strange, higher language that nobody could understand. It was written in the common language of the day. It was written in the marketplace language and the exchange language of people bartering with one another on the streets of cities all over the ancient Near East. And right in the middle of those writings of business dealings and transactions, in real estate, this word kept coming up over and over again, and the word was to telestai. 
on documents indicating that a deed had been signed and a transaction had been completed. The words to Telestai. There is a sense in which the whole of the Old Testament was a deed waiting to be signed. Since the gates of Eden were closed, as sin and failure and guilt cast its shadow and eclipsed the human race through patriarchs and kings and prophets, it was delivered up to the cross as if something were demanded a signature. And Jesus says, it is finished. It is like he took the 39 books of the Old Covenant and he wrote across them the name Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, here's the really cool thing. They dug around those sands of the 19th century found those papyri, what they found was this word used to sign the receipts of business transactions and specifically when a debt had been paid in full, it was stamped with tetelestai, finished. Which leads us to the question, what is it? What's that third person singular, it, and what is it referring to? Well, the first thing I think it refers to is quite literally the life of Jesus. Jesus is about to die. And we spend time at Christmas celebrating that baby in a manger and the shepherds all gathered around and the angels singing glory in the highest to peace on earth to them on who God's favor rests. And the wise men coming and Mary and Joseph pondering all these things in their heart. And it's a beautiful beginning of the story. But then for the next 30 plus years, Jesus lives out what it means to be God in the flesh on earth. And he is coming to an end. And so everything he is building his life around is coming to this moment, quite literally, his life is ending. All those moments he gathered around with his disciples to teach them and instruct them and help them to understand how to live once he was gone was coming to this moment when he's on the cross about to die. Those stories that he told to the multitudes and the crowds where he's trying to tell them about the kingdom of God were coming to this moment in his life when he is on the cross. It is finished. It is over. It is done. His moments of being able to spend time with the people that he loved and cared about and the way that he had loved and cared about them, it was over. It was done. His life was literally ending. And I think it's important. It seems like something that just seems like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus died. But there are people out there that will claim that he never died. And it's important to understand that Christ had to die. And he did. Quite literally when he says, it is finished, his life is finished. It's also the redemptive history that began in the garden is finished. Everything from Genesis to the end of John had been building and moving towards this point in time when God would do the biggest deed in settling the debt that we owed in our sin. If you read the book of Genesis, the first two chapters are pretty good, right? Are you here? Right? You read them, right? So in the first one, he creates the world and he says it's good and creates plants. It's good. He creates Animals, it's good. He creates man and woman, and it's very good. Chapter 2 is about how he created woman, how he looked at Adam, and Adam was lonely, and he took the rib out and made woman, and they, you know, they were together, and it was very, very good, and all that was happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it goes from very good to very bad. And at the end of Genesis chapter 3, when God is doling out the punishments to all those involved in that little serpent eat the fruit incident, he looks at the serpent and he says, a descendant of this woman will crush your head. 
And from Genesis chapter 3 until Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished. The entire Bible is the story of God redeeming his people. It starts in earnest in Genesis 12 where he calls Abram out of the middle of nowhere who served another God and says, you are going to be my people and I'm going to make your people like the sands on the sea, like the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count them. And he begins to build this family and that family builds and builds, even though it is a it is a messed up family. God uses them to build a nation and that nation is trapped into captivity in Egypt and God rescues them through the Passover. And as they get into the wilderness, they have to wander around because they don't follow God's direction. But God is still with them and he's still protecting them. And he's still providing for them. And then they get into the promised land and in the promised land. They do don't don't do a whole lot better. They get in this cycle of disobeying God and calling out to God and God saving them and disobeying God and calling out to God and God saving them. And God sends them prophets and God sends them judges and God sends them king and some kings are good and some kings are bad but the whole time he's trying to lead them to the place where they would come to understand who he is and his desire for them but the whole reason he's doing that is to build a family and a group of people through whom he could send his son so that his son could get on the cross and that on the cross his son could pay the debt for our sin this is Jesus saying to Telestai it's finished it's his life it's the redemptive history that began in the garden, it's his suffering. At that very moment, Jesus must assuredly have thought to himself, it's finished. I mean, as a staff right now, one of the things that we're doing um, in our staff meetings as we prepare for um, Easter is that we're reading a book about the final days of Jesus, the last week of his life. And just reminded, a lot of it's just reading the scripture, but you just reminded of the suffering that Jesus endured in that last 24 to 48 hours. Trials that had trumped up charges and false accusations and people that had been his closest followers abandoning him and those that had been on the edges turning against him and the entire ruling court and ruling council out to get him and declaring him guilty of a crime he never committed. He was beaten and mocked and spat upon and insulted. In my office uh, right now, there's uh, behind where I sit at my desk um, at the very top is a circle of thorns that uh, Michael Richardson was doing some work, bush hog, and he found it. It's just a row of thorns and he fashioned it into uh, a crown of thorns like and just a symbolic kind of thing. It really brought it to me, wanted me to have it, really appreciative of it. But he, he brought it to me and he, he handed it to me. And I still remember, I, I barely like put my hands underneath it. And I'm like, ah! And like, I could not figure out how to touch it without hurting myself. He had that. Jesus pressed down on his head. And if you've been around the church, we don't, we don't need to go through the whole gory details of the things that we'd have been scourged with where it would have had bone chips in the end of leather that would have wrapped into his side and as they yanked it across his back would have literally peeled the skin from his back. He lost so much blood he was dehydrated and hypovolemic and as he's walking down the Via Dolorosa, the road of torture, Someone would have to carry the crossbeam because he could no longer support it. The suffering was ending. 
But one of the things that we often miss talking about a suffering ending is this had not been just a 24 to 48 hour deal for Jesus. Jesus had known his whole life was leading to this moment. Do you remember at Cana, the wedding, and his mom comes to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. And Jesus is like, what does that matter? It's not my time. His time was this. And he had lived his entire life with this cloud of the suffering that was coming over him. Just think about the garden. When he's praying so hard, he's sweating drops of blood. Saying, I don't want to do this. I mean, not to make too much light of this, but I mean, you and I have a problem waiting for a week when we've got a dental procedure scheduled. I just wish you'd get here. I'm just tired. I'm just ready to get it over with. And Jesus had lived with that suffering set before him. And in those last moments, he's saying, it is finished. But he also meant the types and the symbols and the emblems. In the institutions of the Old Testament, the priesthood, the temple, the altar, the sacrifice, all of it were finished. Every lamb, goat, bull, everything that had been offered in the river of blood flowing from the tabernacle and temple flowed right up to the cross when he cried out, it is finished. I find it not coincidental, but providential and important that Jesus was saying it is finished at the exact moment when the people of God were celebrating the Passover and they were getting ready to have slaughtered lamb for meal. Saying all of that, the Passover celebration, while we remember what God did, there's no need for it anymore because it is finished. I wonder if in some of the it is finished, he's not casting a word towards his enemy, an enemy who had worked against him since the moment that he fell from heaven. And that we all see the shadow of Satan himself and everywhere that we look and on the cross, Jesus underneath his pierced feet is declaring that he is crushing the head of the serpent. It is finished. But perhaps for us, the most sweet thought about it. And so what he's declaring in that moment is the payment of the ransom price, the atonement, the covering for you and for me. Everything that had been anticipated throughout history came into that moment in the cross and we were made right with God. It is finished. A few months ago, we talked about these two big words, propitiation and expiation, and we're not going to go into a full description of those again. But in Scripture, they're used kind of interchangeably. And the idea is that what happens in the cross of Jesus Christ is everything that we needed, that we had turned our back on God, and God had turned His back on us because of our sin. And everything that we needed to turn back towards God, and everything He needed to turn back towards us, was accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been atoned for, and we are right with God. It is finished. I read a story this week. One of my favorite authors is a guy named John Ortberg. And John Ortberg is a pastor out in California. And he wrote a book with one of my favorite titles of all time. The title of the book is Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. All right. I just love that. It's very descriptive. All right. And in that book, uh, John Ortberg tells the story of John Gilbert. Now, John Gilbert's probably not a name you know. It's not a name that I knew. But John Gilbert was diagnosed at the age of five with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. I may not be pronouncing that right, but Duchenne's. Muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic, progressive, and cruel disease that was told, the doctors told him, would destroy every muscle in his body. 
And within 10 to 20 years, he would die. Well, John did die at 25 years old. And at the end of his life, he, he had to have machines hooked up to him to even be able to, to breathe. And he could barely use his right hand to move a mouse. But part of what he did is that he used that hand to send his memoirs to John Ortberg, who John had never met him, but he had just gone back and forth with his family some. And in those memoirs, he tells these stories of what happened to him throughout his life and that this disease had taken a little something from him every year. And so one year it took from him the ability to run. He can no longer run. And so sports was out with, for him and the other kids. That The next year it took away his ability to walk straight. And the next year was his ability to speak. And that each year it seemed it took something from him. He talks about the lowest of lows of his life. He, he describes junior high, middle school as the worst years of his life. And all of God's people said, well, that's not fun, right? But he also had some really cool moments. One year he was named the representative for everyone with his disease in the state of California. He got flown to Sacramento, California, had a private meeting with the governor. He got in there for the private meeting with the governor, he and his mom. And there was this huge bowl of candy on the table. And the governor said to him, take whatever you want. Fill your pockets. It doesn't matter. Eat whatever. And the... John looked at his mother as if getting approval, and the governor said, in this office, my word's better than your mom's. Do whatever you want. (laughs) That night, the NFL had a fundraiser for his disease, and they did a huge fundraiser for it. Let him go and meet NFL players, put on their Super Bowl rings. Some of them were were over like three or four fingers. It was just ridiculous. And as a part of that, his favorite basketball team were the Sacramento Kings. And he said that on display that night for auction, they had had an auction, a live auction that night. On display was the basketball signed by every player of the Sacramento Kings. And they got to that place and they were getting ready to do bids. And the first bid was more money than John's family made in a year. And immediately they said, who will give me that amount for the basketball? And John's hand went up in the air. To which his mother quickly grabbed it and yanked it down. In fact, John said, NASA astronauts have not felt the G-forces on their arms that I did in that moment. Like, get it down. And the bidding on the basketball went up and up and up and up. And so finally, one of the people there bid what was an astronomical, unbelievable amount of money for a basketball. And they said, sold to gentleman number 28. He walked up. He picked up the basketball and he walked directly to John and he sat it down in front of him. I want to read you a quote from John about that night. He says, it took me a moment to realize what he had done. I remember hearing gasp all around the room and then thunderous applause and seeing eyes full of weeping. And to this day, I'm amazed. Have you ever been given a gift you could have never gotten for yourself? From the moment we're born, we begin this process of allowing sin to take away something from us every year. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, it's as if Jesus purchased what we could not even come close to thinking about purchasing. And he delivers it to us and he says... The pain and the suffering 
and the guilt of your sin is over. It is finished. You think about Him on the cross and this moment between Him and the Father announcing to His Dad, it's done. I did it. It's finished. To the angelic host gathered around as they have been watching, waiting, prepared to do whatever He asked them to do. As they are waiting in anticipation of what's about to happen. And He looks to them and He declares, it is finished. As He looks to the enemies of God, the demons and the enemy Himself gathered around looking and listening and wondering what's going to happen. And He declares in that moment, it is finished. And when he looks from that cross to you and to me, he says, are you worried about the sin in your life that you can't seem to get rid of? It's finished. Are you worried about the pain of divorce that is going into your family and all that has happened there? And you wonder if you'll ever make it out of this. Trust in me. I can make your life whole. It's finished. To the widow who's just struggling to make it to the end and doesn't know how she's going to give another day. He looks and he says, you can trust in the future because it is finished. To the young people that have had people abandon them and friends, maybe for sins they're taking for their faith. He says to them, it is okay. It is finished. To the businessman whose job and career is failing. And the debts keep piling up. Even though he's tried everything he knows to make it right. He says, it is finished. To the sinner. Who's never given their heart and life to Jesus Christ. And has found themselves on a path that leads to destruction. And whose life doesn't have any hope at all. He says, Trust in me. I'll make it right. It's finished. So how do we know it worked? I mean, it's one thing for somebody to say something like that. How do you know it's true? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the moment he says it, he commits his, head, his life into the hands of his father. He dies and the curtain of the temple splits. The symbolic Division between man and God is torn apart. And the truth is, if that would have been it, even that wouldn't have been enough. And if his body had been turned to dust in some unmarked Palestinian grave, we would have no vindicating assurance. But I know, and what we celebrate this week, and what we celebrate every week, is that his body did not lay in an unmarked unmarked tomb somewhere, but that he third day rose from the grave. Now what I love is, even though the title of this servant is Jesus' last word, that's kind of not true, because his last words weren't the words on the cross, because he came back from the grave, and he spoke to people, and he's still moving and acting and living today. He is alive, and because of that, it is finished. And the fact that you and I are here today, 
able to speak boldly for the claims of Jesus Christ and able to see him transform our lives meant that when he says it is finished, it is finished. To telestai. What seems like kind of a strange word carries so much for you and me. Let's pray together.